Welcome to EdTech Speaks, a podcast bringing guests together to share their expertise and advice on navigating business and education in a technology-driven world. From entrepreneurs to vendors, higher education to corporate leaders, we'll uncover their perspective regarding the latest trends and technologies impacting your career or business. Our podcast is made possible by Downing EdTech Consulting, where people and technology connect. Hosted by Cher Downing, an experienced executive spanning a higher education and corporate career with specific focus on the EdTech industry, Dr. Downing is also an international and national presenter, author, and regular media contributor. Now here is your host, EdTech strategist, Dr. Cher Downing. Hi, everybody, and welcome to EdTech Speaks, a podcast where we try to share as much information as possible about the expertise and advice on bringing together technology, business, and just our education, both from how we academically learn and how we actually function through the world. Welcome today is our guest, Phil Johnson. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm so excited to have Phil on here, and I I have to read this because if you haven't visited Phil's LinkedIn site yet, he runs a Global Master of Business Leadership program that we're going to get into. But what I love is he titles in under his name, Emotional Intelligence, Dyslexic Thinker, Career and Organizational Development, Executive Coach, Sales Trainer, Trailblazer, International Speaker, Podcast Host, and Guest. And the reason that I wanted to really highlight that is when you look at that, all of those things intertwine so nicely. And we are always trying so desperately to silo everything. We live in a world of everything has to be separate. You can't be an executive coach without emotional intelligence. You can't be a speaker without emotional intelligence. You have to constantly be thinking of trailblazing. Where do we go next? You know, what's the world doing? And so... When Phil and I talked, it just seems like this was a really good opportunity to bring him to the audience and to talk through a little bit about what he's doing and what he's seeing on the horizon. So, Phil, with that, I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit and talk about your history and how you've gotten to where you're at. Sure. Thank you. I um, I don't know if I can uh, outdo your introduction, but I, um, I've been an executive coach for the last 21 years. and. I've really been on this path for 54 years. I actually, I just turned 68, but I actually started on this path when I uh, I just turned 14. It was a month after my mother's death. She died of breast cancer, and I decided I, uh, I wanted to do this kind of work. So what I do now and what I will continue to do comes full circle with the promise I made to myself 54 years ago. I took a a short detour into the uh, semiconductor industry for about 20 years. I actually left my corporate career in an executive role and uh, was traveling about 60,000 miles a year throughout North America and the Pacific Rim. But I was born with dyslexia. And back in those days, there was no such thing as dyslexia or ADD or ADHD. And... um, I was just labeled a slow learner. I failed grade three and I failed grade five and um, kind of carried that label for the first 35 years of my life. But it was really the death of my mother 
that kind of gave me the momentum to move outside of my comfort zone and do even more of what I now refer to as emotional labor. I went on and got a BCom, most of an MBA, studied electrical engineering for five years and um, did very well in that part of my life. But my passion has always been doing what I've been doing now for the na- for the last 21 years, and that's uh, helping to develop uh, emotional intelligence. I love that. And it's, it's interesting because I think we are now seeing a time, particularly those that are in the baby boomer stage and the, we keep calling them all different names and such, but, but basically anyone under, anyone under about 55 years old is really looking at their life from kind of two perspectives. I always tell people we lived half our lives without technology and without all the, the rapid growth that has occurred. So we remember when. And we remember when people did things because it was important to them. We got into the mode of making money and building careers and, you know, the fast pace. And this is this is how the world goes. And what I'm seeing now is is exactly what you're saying, is that that initial passion has still maintained all the way through. And so a lot of people have stepped back and decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going back to what I really wanted to do in the first place. Maybe I didn't even know exactly what it was, but I really kind of had a feeling that there was something else I was meant for. It was much more purposeful. And so I think you're a great example of that because I think the biggest impact we're seeing right now is on education. We're seeing teachers leave in droves from K through 12 because of the struggles that are going on both pre and post pandemic. We're seeing higher education losing a lot of really quality people because they're unhappy with a system that has not made really many modifications in the last 50 years. And the pandemic taught all of us when we stayed home and we had a much simpler life that we really enjoyed it. And we really were reluctant to go back to that pace that we had gotten ourselves into. So I'm excited because I think you're just in the right place at the right time for this. You have been working towards what this very era is is all about. Sure. I think that's a great comment. And I agree with you. We're facing a tsunami of change. Some scientists estimate that we could experience as much as the equivalent of 20,000 years worth of change in this century. So change has gone from being occasional or episodic to exponential. And we've got a 500 million year old brain that doesn't like change. (laughs) So our educational system and our employment system has really done very little to prepare us for the challenges we're facing. It's done very little. It's focused primarily on our ability to do intellectual labor, but really hasn't done very much to develop our emotional intelligence. And so there's a whole piece of our development that's missing. And our our intellectual intelligence and our emotional intelligence were meant to work together. So the accelerating rate of global change and the anxiety that's creating in us is really forcing us to develop this other capability, which quite frankly is uh, is quite challenging. But I think that's where we are. I think we're at a tipping point in our evolution as a species. And um, the challenge ahead of us is uh, is to be willing to do the emotional labor that the development of emotional intelligence requires. I think that is something that we've really struggled with 
we have always tried to adapt to the situation as opposed to adapt to what's going on around us. We're so focused on situational. Uh, we're so influenced. We're influenced by people individually. We're influenced by trends. We're influenced by all sorts of things. And I think we've lost the ability in some respect to, to form a, a truly conscious opinion of what we do. I think we really have gotten into just following whatever's going on. Yeah, we're only conscious about 3 to 5% of the time. The rest of the time, we're relying on our unconscious habits to create the behaviors and actions that generate our results. Over the last 21 years, I've been proving the central thesis around what I do is that there's a uh, is an energy physics to all of this that makes the results as predictable and quantifiable as any physical science. And that sounds like a mouthful, and it is, but it's really, there's a root cause problem that we haven't been addressing. At best, what we've been focused on is addressing symptoms of the root cause problem. And the root cause problem involves the energy physics of our unconsciously giving away our energy to others. And that creates a dynamic that is toxic. So what I what I do in the MBL program is I show people how they're giving away their energy and I give them better habits to practice to stop doing that. And we do it in a, a myriad of ways, how we communicate, listen, take responsibility, make decisions, all sorts of ways. But when we stop giving away our energy to others, the need to try and steal the energy of others goes away. It's in that process, the emotional labor that requires that we develop our emotional intelligence, we become more inspirational leaders, and we raise our level of consciousness about what's going on in us and around us all at the same time. But this process is an experiential process. It's not an intellectual process. So I often tell people that I start working with, and I've worked with people running multi-billion dollar companies with thousands of employees and Harvard MBAs and PhDs and everything in between. One of the first things I say is, I don't care what you think. I only care what you do because what you do will change what you think. So whatever you're thinking now is a reflection of what you've been doing and your underlying paradigm, which is getting you your current results. If you want to get better results, you have to change what you're doing you have to develop better habits, and that will change how you think. That will change your view of reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we it's interesting to me because we see it in small things we do. And I see this in uh, students oftentimes that are in college. The difference between that class you take that you love, you know, you're, you're steeped in that topic, you know, you had a long, passionate interest in it. Boy, you know, every paper is done. Every every question is answered in class. Hands are raised. And then you get into, here's the core class that you're required to take in order to graduate. And they just struggle. And everyone says, well, it's because they don't understand the material. And I'm like, but is it really? Because if they're struggling to learn material and they're struggling to move forward and they're struggling to learn at this level, then they should be seeing that all the way across the board. But if I'm seeing you getting A's over in these major courses and I'm seeing you getting C's and D's in 
some course that, that just someone said you had to take, I kind of think there's a difference here. And we've never been good at looking at that. But, you know, that's just one small example of exactly what you're talking about is when when we work with students and we get them into the mindset of all of this is important, just some of this will be used at different points in your life, they become much more steeped in it across the board instead of being selective into what they like and what they don't like. They start to change their habits. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, formal education has been around compliance and the mm-hmm. the fear to get a good job and maybe yeah. use position-based power to uh, control and manipulate others. So the the model is incorrect. The model that we've been forcing people to jump through is incorrect. And really what we need to be doing is we need to have a, a process to unleash the the creativity the genius, the uniqueness in every individual. And you can't do that en masse. It's an individual process. You can't have organizational change without individual change. Individual change needs to occur. There's a methodology for individual change, and there's a methodology for organizational change. But you can't have organizational change without individual change first. And we tend to focus on economies of scale at the cost of uniqueness. And it's just, it's backfired at every point along the way. And we just, we're at the tipping point where we we can't keep doing what we've been doing. I think we're actually at a tipping point, not just, I think we're actually at a tipping point as a species. And um the challenges we face in this century, CRISPR-Cas9 gene and egg technology, climate change, AI, other pandemics, we are completely unprepared for. We are mm-hmm. completely unprepared for the, the drama, chaos, and conflict that that will create in us. And we don't really understand how difficult change is both from a biological and a sociological perspective. So we really don't have a choice anymore. We're going to have to change. We're going to have to change at a very, very, very uncomfortable rate that we've never been used to. And we really need our emotional intelligence to be able to do that. Example, and I'm sure you you know this, Whenever we take an action that moves us out of our comfort zone, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala that doesn't like us to do that. So it it secretes a hormone into our bloodstream called cortisol, causes our prefrontal cortex, the executive center of our brain, to shut off. And when that happens in conflict situations, people die. And when it happens in business or personal situations, relationships die. We burn trust. So if you think of if you think of your amygdala as an analogy, if you think of your amygdala as a very frightened four-year-old child, the development of our emotional intelligence acts like a big sister or a big brother to quiet the amygdala response down and better enable us to feel the anxiety that changing innovation creates in us and move through it towards the vision of our desired results, as opposed to allowing that anxiety to, to keep us stuck in our comfort zone. And that's what I refer to as emotion. That journey is what I refer to as emotional labor. And that's the journey to emotional intelligence, inspirational leadership, and higher consciousness. 
And we're not good at change. We've typically, if the only way we can learn is by putting our hand on the stove, we have to develop <laughs> the intuition to know to not put our hand on the stove before we do that, because we're assuming that we can make a mistake and be around to learn from it. And right. I really think that the challenges we're facing, we're not going to get a do-over. We've got to get it right the first time. So that's why that with the accelerating rate of change, more and more companies are hiring, promoting, and developing emotional intelligence. And quite frankly, I think it's going to be, it's going to turn out to be a multi-trillion dollar a year industry that's going to in large part replace the current educational industry. Because whereas the, our ability to do intellectual labor is largely genetic, not everybody can have 160 IQ, anybody can develop their emotional intelligence. And the ROI in developing your emotional intelligence keeps getting greater and greater and greater. There's no, there's no ceiling. No, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that where I've seen a disruptor in this has been when online education came forward. And I've spent many years, as you know, working in that space. But one of the things that has always frustrated me is in corporate, we move forward. We, we adapt. We see what's going on. We see what our employees need. And we, we create that response to that need. In academia, as you said, we stay within that compliance structure. And so I see we're taking part A and moving it to part B, but we never talk about why. We never talk about, is this a really good time to do something different? Some schools do. There are some schools out there that are very innovative, but there are a lot of them that are still fulfilling that compliance need just in a different delivery format. When online learning first came out, people said, well, not everybody can learn online. And I said, well, why can't they? Well, it's just, they just can't do it. And I said, no, it's not that they can't do it. They choose not to do it. People said, you, we can't run our office. We can't run our business online. Every, you know, we have to be in the office. Everyone has to be here. Well, guess what? 2020 was the ta-da. We pulled the rabbit out of the hat. And many, many businesses were quite successful, even above and beyond what they were when they were in their offices. We tell ourselves and we stop ourselves without really thinking through the process. We just have assumptions and we make assumptions for everybody across the board. You know, the other area we've done this for a long time is with promotion. So we pick someone who is really good at one thing and then we make them executive VP of everything. And then we're shocked that they don't do well with it. You know, even in academia, you know, we take a faculty member and we make them a division chair. And then we're shocked that they don't understand the administrative portion of it. Well, they've spent their entire career teaching. They're very good at the academic side. We don't train. We don't talk. We don't look at what's the real purpose for moving someone into a position as opposed to, well, you've put in your time. We kind of owe it to you. We should move you up. You know, we, we are slow to get out of that. We still are seeing a lot of it. And so it's interesting to me that all of this ties together because technology has been introduced. We thought it was going to replace us. We had all seen too many movies and thought that the world was coming to an end and robots were going to do everything. And then we figured out that wasn't it. Then we decided, well, they could do things, but we wanted to limit them. Then we figured out that by starting down the path of AI, that the robots are getting smarter than we are because they're willing to adapt. They're willing to learn as they move forward. They're doing the very function that we as humans should be doing. 
So I think that, you know, the technology aspect of it too is also interesting and in that we should be learning truly from our counterparts. We're not going to change until we're forced to change. And your, you know, your example of how COVID has ripped us all out of our comfort zones and forced us to do things that, uh, uh, we were dead, dead set against and said we couldn't do. In a sense, what we're going through now is a gift because it's showing us how terrible we are at embracing change and how we try and slow it down at every, every potential possibility. But the rate of change is going to continue to accelerate and we have no choice. We will not be able to slow it down. And we're going to have to change at a very uncomfortable rate and embrace the fear and the anxiety that that's going to create. And most people, quite frankly, aren't going to be willing to do that. There's only a small percentage of the pot. When we're faced with fear, it forces us to go in one of two directions. It either forces us back deeper into our comfort zone and we become more resistive, more judgmental, more attached to outcome. Or it can help us, it can give us the motivation to move through that anxiety towards the vision of our desired results. And in that process, we become less resistive, less judgmental, and less attached to outcome as we're moving towards being more present or enlightened. We raise our level of consciousness. We become more conscious of what's going on in us and around us. And quite frankly, we haven't evolved very much from cave people bumping into each other. And we can't afford not to evolve quickly during this century. So it's going to take a, a dramatic amount of effort for some of us to become the leaders that will inspire the others to follow. So that's the challenge. That's a, that's the challenge before us. That's why I'm focusing more and more on podcasts and uh, helping people understand the the value and importance of developing their emotional intelligence. I think it's it's not a a solution to the challenges we face. I think it's the only solution to the challenges we face, and it's not clear whether we're going to be able to do the work required to get us through this century. I think that's a, that's a valid point in the sense of we are always catching up. We do usually reach a point when something occurs, but it's usually a catch-up period. Even now, one of the things that you said that, that made me <laughs> smile is um, I talked with someone who said when they went fully remote last year, their their vice president said, you know, we'll have our weekly Zoom team meetings and there's about 10 people that dial in. And he said, uh, you know, we're not going to worry about the dress code. You know, normally when they're in the corporate office, you know, it's suits and dresses and et cetera. And, and he said, you know, we're not going to worry about it. We just need to we need to make sure that we're staying strong. Companies moving forward. So after about the third meeting, the person I was talking to made the comment that she said, you know, it is fascinating to me how quickly we have all become a group. She said, now, keep in mind, we've been a team for three years. She said, but there is something about being around that boardroom 
and the VP at the very end and everyone sitting based on, you know, their designated role and everyone dressed in a, in a certain way. She said, whereas around on Zoom, it was just 10 boxes of people in T-shirts or polo shirts who were just talking. And she said, you know, I think the, the best thing that happened to our team was the pandemic. She said, and that's a horrible thing to say. She said, but, you know, when we went back to the office, she said, we were different and the relationships were different. You bring up an ex- excellent point, and that's that as we raise our level of consciousness, we can't go backwards. We can't pretend we don't know. So on this journey, there's an analogy I like to use, penny doubling. If you take a penny and you double it every day from 31 days, day one, you've got a penny. Day two, you've got two pennies. Day 31, you've got $10.7 million. Day 32, you've got twice that amount. The point is that it doesn't take any more effort to go from day 30 to day 31 than it did to go from day one to day two. So in the beginning, it's it's a building process. In the beginning, it looks like you're doing a lot of work for a little, and you are, because you don't know what you don't know. Later on, it looks like you're doing a little work for a lot, but it's because of this building process, this consciousness building, habit building process. There are folks I've been working with for over 12 years because the ROI keeps getting greater and greater and greater and greater. Mm-hmm. And the, the interactions, the conversations are, are incredible. The consciousness is incredible. So it's hard. In the beginning, it always requires a leap of faith because this is an ex, because the development of emotional intelligence is an experiential process rather than an intellectual process. You have to take the, you can only connect the dots in hindsight. And people I coach, I often ask them, and, and they're going through the process, and they're going, this is amazing, you know, all this. And I'm saying, yeah, I know. Is there anything I could have said to you in the beginning that could have prepared you for what you know now? Are there any magic words? Or <laughs> every, every single person I ask, I ask that of, they say, no, there's nothing you could have told me that could have prepared me for what I know now. So the point is, it's always a leap of faith in the beginning. And there's only two sources of motivation that will cause people to be willing to take that leap. One is pain. The other one is passion. And hardly anybody's connected with their passion. So for that small number of individuals that are willing to take the blind leap of faith into this process, it's usually driven by pain and urgent desire for better results. And without that, you won't be willing to do the emotional labor that it requires, which is most people, frankly, the vast majority of people aren't willing to do the emotional labor that change requires. So what they do instead, if they're not willing to change themselves, they try and change everybody else. They try and use position-based <laughs> power, to control and manipulate others. And quite frankly, we've been doing that for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Hasn't worked, will never work. And <laughs> we, you know, current level of employee engagement, according to Gallup's like 13%. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very toxic environments because people are constantly trying to control and manipulate and steal each other's energy, creating drama, chaos, and conflict. So that's the challenge we face. We can't. We cannot change an organization without 
first changing the individuals in the organization. It's got to be bottom up. And you need to identify and support those individuals that are willing to take the leap of faith, which will be few. It won't be many. But you have to find those people and you have to work with those people because those people are going to be the inspirational leaders based on their behaviors and the results that are going to motivate others to move in this direction. And as that occurs, the organization begins to heal itself and the levels of engagement begin to increase and you start to get far greater results with less effort and more fun. And that really is an enjoyable situation when you get the opportunity to work in a place like that and you get an opportunity to grow within a place like that because really you're growing. You're not just working there. You're contributing. You'd have people lined up around the block to want to work in your organization. As well, you'd have customers lined up around the block to want to work in your organization. I'm working with an executive in um, in Africa, in Malawi, and I said to him a couple of weeks ago, I said, what's, what's the level of trust, generally speaking, between customers, suppliers, and business partners? He said, I guess it was somewhere around 15 to 20%. Wow. So people don't value their work. They don't value their their trustability. They're isolated from each other as individuals and as organizations. So I said, you know, that's a hell of a competitive advantage. There's something called, a, you may know this, something called the, the trust economy. Because of the accelerating rate of change, people have stopped trying to keep up with latest and greatest, and they're relying more on more on their network of trusted advisors. The trust economy is currently estimated at over $10 trillion a year, and it's growing much faster than the traditional economy. So the ability to demonstrate trustability as an individual or as an organization is your major competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Technology advantage comes and goes. Economic advantage comes and goes. But if somebody wants to work with you, they'll find a way to work with you. If they don't want to work with you, they'll find a way not to work with you, regardless of whether you have the best technology or the best pricing. It's interesting that you say that because I think about Amazon is a good example of this. People will buy a product because someone rates the product and gives a review. And I always joke about there was a time where there was someone called like, I don't know, Pink Poodle 33 or something, you know, some strange uh, handle, not even a real name. But because this person, you know, wrote a review, somebody else bought a product. And I said, so what is it that that says to you, boy, I don't know if I want to trust the manufacturer, but hey, you know, pink poodle lady, <laughs> she said it's great, so I'm going to buy it. But we've, we've become that reliance on our social network, on our social media, on people that are buying the same products, doing the same things that we're doing even in terms of, of uh, movie stars, you know, someone is, is utilizing something or someone is promoting something. And I look at all the commercials, you know, with the tiny little FDA not approved yet at the bottom, but because, you know, there's an NFL star or former star selling it, 
people are buying it. It's fascinating to me. Because we've evolved from herds, tribes, we've had to develop the ability to sense whether somebody's trying to help us or eat us. So we have these specialized brain cells that scientists call mirror neurons. I actually call them bullshit meters. <laughs> you can't fake being authentic. We can sense whether somebody's being real or not. And that's when you go into an Apple store, the energy you feel is an example of a more emotionally intelligent environment. Apple's mm-hmm. whole hiring process is geared to searching for people with above average levels of emotional intelligence. They will teach you about their products and services. But what their primary focus is, they're looking for people with above average levels of emotional intelligence. When you go to an Apple store, they're not trying to sell you anything. They're trying to understand your pain. They're trying to understand how best to serve you. Whether you buy anything or not is secondary to whether they can help you. They want you to have a great experience. And maybe when you leave, you'll go tell your friends that, hey, these guys really helped me. And that's really how the trust economy works. The the basis of it is emotional intelligence. Absolutely. So, Phil, talk to us a little bit about the MBL. We can see your logo there behind you. And obviously, lots of people do their master's administration because that is, for years, been the key to, you know, unlocking the corporate gate, so to speak. You know, it's very valued. Even in in education, it's very valued. But you've taken it a step further and gone into the MBL. So talk to us a little bit about that. That's a great question. Again, Cher, thanks for asking it. I actually came up with the title Master of Business Leadership as a because of MBAs. And uh, early, you know, 20, 21, 22 years ago, I was saying, hey, you know, we don't need more masters of business administration. We don't need better administrators. We need better <laughs> leaders. And the, the master of business leadership program is a four month program, although I have been working for people for years because of what I said earlier about the ROI and raising levels of consciousness. It's a fantastic program proven to dramatically accelerate everything, both on a career, business, and a personal level. I've helped organizations generate hundreds of millions of dollars and people move up in their careers on a a business side, but also on a personal side. About 80% of our new clients come from referrals of existing clients because they see the changes in them and the results they're getting. And they say, whatever the hell's in the Kool-Aid, I don't care. Whatever the hell this MBL thing is, I don't care. Just I want whatever <laughs> she got. Whatever he got, sure. I want. And really, that's that's kind of like the ultimate litmus test or the accreditation. I, say, I often tell people, if you, if you need a piece of paper to demonstrate your leadership, you're not a leader. If your actions don't demonstrate your leadership, you're not a leader. If your actions don't inspire people to want to follow you, you're not a leader. And so, so that's why I, that's why I did it. It's not to, to develop MBL as a complement to an MBA. MBA focuses primarily on doing intellectual labor. Great. MBL focuses on doing emotional labor. So if you think another analogy I like to use, an iceberg, 
the one tenth of the iceberg sticking above the water is IQ and experience. The nine tenths of the iceberg under the water is emotional intelligence, largely untapped. So by developing our emotional intelligence, it acts as a massive results multiplier for whatever results we've been getting primarily on our ability to do intellectual labor. And most of the people I work with come from high-tech kind of backgrounds. And typically, they have high IQs and low EQs. Because when we get scared, when we leave our comfort zone, we get scared and we run to our strength and away from our weakness. So people often get hired for their for their IQ and experience and fired for a lack of emotional intelligence. So the MBL program fills that gap. Not only do you get better business results and personal results, but there's a bigger thing here that we need to be focusing on. We need to be developing better leaders so we can change our trajectory as a species in the face of the tsunami of change we face. Getting better business results is easy, quite frankly. Getting moving our careers is not that difficult. But the bigger issue is we have to change our trajectory. We have to develop the wisdom, the consciousness to stop putting our hand on the stove and hoping we can hoping we can be around to learn from it. No, I think you're absolutely right. And we saw just a small inkling of that with the pandemic. When we got ready to return to normal, as we called it back then, many employees said, I'm not going back. I'm not going back for health reasons. I'm not going back because I decided I don't want to put my time, you know, the bulk of my day that way. Lots and lots of things. And so the, the you know, 5% of the businesses who, who got this as a, as a time to preempt change said, let everybody work from home. You know, we'll figure out a way to do this differently. Let me bust um, in here for a second, if you don't yeah. mind. Think about this. From the time we were kids, we've been socialized into this model. Okay. If the model is wrong, if the model we've been socialized into is incorrect, if the model we've been socialized into views power as external as something you got to go get, you're not enough. You need this, you need that mm-hmm. to complete yourself. If that fundamental thesis is wrong, doesn't it stand to reason that the people that are most successful within the definition of that model? are most wrong and most unwilling to change. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be the last people to change, if at all. Absolutely. So we really need to be looking for those individuals that are willing to challenge themselves to move out of their paradigm, out of their comfort zone, and do the emotional labor that higher consciousness and better results requires. And it is it is not going to be the people running industry today. What got them to where they are will not get them to where they need to be in the century. The 20th century was about the economies of scale of bigness, and people were the necessary evil to run the machines, build the machines, take care of the machines that generated the profit. If you look on a balance sheet today, people are still considered expenses, employee expense, mm-hmm. training expense, travel expense. 
but really people are the assets of the 21st century, not technology, not machines. And we really need to have, we need to be able to unleash the potential within each individual. And that's the future of organizational development. I agree. Absolutely. I have always said for years, people say, well, online is going to change everything. And and we're going to be able to learn online. It's going to change our schools. But online is a delivery method. That's all that it is. The different delivery methods, the different way to do something we're already doing. The point is, if we weren't doing it well in the classroom, it's not going to get any better moving it online. (laughs) You know, this is like cooking. If you don't cook well in your own kitchen, you're probably not going to make a great chef just to walk in and try to cook something. You know, there's a level of training, level of skill set. But more importantly, a great chef has a level of passion. You don't meet a chef to just train. Let's let's just uh, talk about the current educational system for a second. It's getting the hell beat out of it every day, rightfully so. But the reality is that it's it doesn't deliver value for cost. And it's got so top-heavy over the generations that it's a dinosaur. That method of learning, of evolving, is just outgrown its usefulness. And they're, they're trying to hang on to the status quo. It's, it's like the publishing industry or the music industry. Mm-hmm. They're trying to hang on until it just disappears. It's just, it, it, they don't have a chance. Yeah, we, we definitely are, uh, you know, heads in the sand on a lot of this. So, But I'm so excited about, you know, your work and your research, because I think the thing that you look at is where are we going and, and what's beyond all of this? And I think the approach of, of being able to do it as an individual and also have an influence in larger uh, scope in the organization is so valuable. I'm excited to see that you're offering. If anyone would like a, a chance to talk with you, we're going to put a Calendly link up for our listeners and they can you know, set up a time to do that. You have people who are graduates of the MBL all over the world. So pretty easy to find a connection also and find somebody nearby that you can talk to about it. I want to thank you for being on the show today, Phil. This has been fantastic. And you and I could talk for hours about this. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, we still, uh, to our listeners, we're still talking about education, technology, and business and where the intersect is and where we're going. And this is a really good example of not talking about products and not talking about learning and not talking about all of these things in the traditional sense but seeing yet another scope of where these all interact and and how this is going to influence our world going forward. Sure. I I want to thank you for allowing me to be on your show. And I want to, I want to thank you for the work you're doing um, and your, your, uh, your leadership in doing it. Well, I appreciate that. It's an exciting time. It's a challenging time. And for those of us that like climbing the mountain, we're out there, we're out there in droves. You just got to find each other. To our listeners, we'll be putting up all of Phil's information on our links. Uh, as usual, you can listen to us on your favorite spots. But, you know, obviously, we're always on Spotify, Audible, Apple, iRadio. So be sure and look for us there. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Thanks, Phil, for being here. And thank you all for attending another episode of EdTech Speaks. Until you listen to us next time, keep learning. 
Thank you for listening to EdTech Speaks with EdTech strategist Cher Downing. To learn more about the services Downing EdTech and its staff can provide you, find us at www.downingedtech.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to share it. We'd also like to hear from you regarding any suggestions for topics or guests and the value you received from our show. Check back for new podcasts with featured guests at www.downingedtech.com backslash podcast. Wow. Wow. Wow.